0: Hello, from the East Coast to the West Coast and to listeners around the world. Welcome to the Truth Seekers Radio Show. I'm your host, Angeline Marie. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. We're broadcasting on Liberty Works Radio Network at Network.com and their affiliate stations. You can also hear us now on the K-Star Talk Radio Network at kstartalkradio.com. And don't forget you can always learn more about our program and find podcasts posted at TruthseekersRadioshow.com. Today, my guest is William J. Feder. He is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of Amerisearch Inc., a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. He also hosts a daily radio feature called American Minute and it's, broadca- cr- it's broadcast across America. His Faith in History television airs on TCT Network, on stations across America, and Direct TV. And if you will help me welcome Mr. Fetter. How you doing today, Bill?
1: It's great to be with you.
0: I thought that, I know that you had a book, I believe it was called The Real Truth of Islam, is that correct?
1: Well, it's titled what every American needs to know about the Quran, a history of Islam in the United States. And what I do is I go through the entire uh, 1400 year history of Islam and past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. And so once we learn this history, it sort of gives us a little bit of an insight into where this is all headed.
0: Well, I, I know most Americans today realize that there's this clash going on in the Middle East specifically around Israel. But I don't think a lot of us really understand how and why that came about. We do understand maybe that uh, I think it was in 1948, when the League of Nations said Israel could have this piece of land. But really, then today, we fast forward and we see there's this thing about the Palestinians, and they should have a right. So we I think a lot of people don't really understand their history behind that. So if we could start there, what is the truth behind the history of Israel, Palestine, and the problems today in the Middle East?
1: Um, well, great questions. And we obviously, Israel... Uh, was around 1400 B.C. is when Moses and the children of Israel first entered there. Uh, Around 9000 B.C. is when you get King David and King Solomon. Uh, 600 B.C. is when they're scattered uh, to Babylon uh, and then they're let back and then uh, they're underneath of Persia. So Cyrus of Persia lets him rebuild. Uh, things are going along fine until Persia is conquered by Alexander the Great. He brings in Hellenism and uh, the naked statues and the gymnasiums and uh, a whole lot of the um, secular uh, uh, influence, uh, then taken over by the Romans. And then the Romans decide in around 70 A.D. to banish the Jews and scatter them. And they wanted to erase the memory of Israel. They Josephus wrote sort of a uh, obituary of the of the Jewish people in his uh Histories of the Jews. Um, and they renamed Jerusalem Capiter Ju- Jupiter uh and uh then they uh you know at first put up a statue of the Roman emperor, you know, where the holy temple was and um but uh, the Jews were not allowed to come in, even within sight of Jerusalem, or they'd be killed. And uh, that's when the Romans renamed the area Palestine. That was the very first time that the word was used. It was the Romans trying to rename this area in their effort to erase the the presence of this Jewish people. Um, The Romans sort of did this to other areas as well. Uh, we have Muslims doing this today. They'll come in and they want to destroy the history and the, mu- the museum and artwork and pyramids or whatever. But um, it was this, uh, this conquest of this area. Anyway, um, so the Roman Empire eventually becomes Christian around 313 AD is when Constantine converts. And so now you have a Christian Roman Empire, and Constantine's mom is St. Helena. And she goes to Jerusalem. And she tries to find the places of Christ's passion and builds cathedrals. And um, so uh, now uh, the, Jerusalem is a Byzantine Christian Roman city. Uh, but then I fast forward a century or so, and you come to Islam. And so Muhammad uh, starts his faith in 610 A.D. in Mecca. Uh, he only makes 70 converts. He gets confrontational. The people of Mecca chase Muhammad out of town. He has nowhere to go. He's a Muslim refugee. He goes north to a Jewish city called Medina. They're nice and let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes into the minority neighborhoods in Medina, and he uh, organizes a following. We're familiar with the term of community organizer. Uh, He gets a following, and then he goes to the Jewish leaders and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically. And they do. They make a treaty with Muhammad, so now he's a political leader. And then Muhammad's followers get confrontational, and they get chased out of Mecca, and they go to Medina as Muslim immigrants, and uh, Muhammad allows them to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So we see a departure from the example of Jesus, who said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, and Muhammad's was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. He had 300 warriors. They would rob caravans. He gets a whole chapter of the Quran from his Allah on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. Muhammad gets a fifth of the booty. While the uh, Meccans send 1,000 soldiers to escort and protect their caravan, Muhammad, with 300, defeats 1,000 at the Battle of Badra. This amazing victory, having been outnumbered 3 to 1, convinces Muhammad to be a military leader. And he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years, killing 3,000 people. Uh, and they behead 700 Jews in Medina. So, within five years of him coming into the Jewish city as a Muslim immigrant, there's not a Jew left in the city. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. Within five years of his death, every pre existing culture in Arabia is wiped out. And then the Muslim warriors conquer uh, Jerusalem And uh, around 638 AD with Caliph Umar. And um, then the Muslims conquer Syria. People forget that Syria was the first country that was completely Christian. Evangelized by the Apostle Paul, the name Christian was first used in Syria. And these Syrian Christians evangelized east like the Greeks did west. So these Syrian Christians evangelized into India, Mongolia, even China. During the Tang Dynasty in the 600s had a thriving Syrian Christian community. There's actually more ancient Christian writing in the Syrian language of Syriac than any other language other than Greek and Latin. But anyway, Khalif Umar conquered Syria, and uh, the Christians were put into a dimmy second-class status, having to pay the taxes and so forth. And, and then the Muslims conquered Egypt. Egypt used to be completely Christian, evangelized by Mark that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until Amir ibn al-As conquers it around 642 A.D. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. So Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya, that was all Christian. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. Today, that's Tunisia. Anyway, then the Muslims invade Spain in the year 711. 80,000 Muslims, and they're on their Arabian horses and their stirrups and their scimitar swords. Europeans are still fighting on foot. So in 10 years, the Muslims conquer all of Spain, cross the Pyrenees Mountains, conquer southern France. Pope Gregory puts out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel. He was the grandfather of Charlemagne. Charles Martel gets 30,000 volunteers, and they stop the Muslims at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., just outside of Paris, exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in a lightning 100-year military campaign. And since this is the first century of Islam, there are some Muslims that look to that as the example of how they're supposed to act the same way that Christians look back to the first century of Christianity and Jesus and the apostles and the early church as the true example of how Christians are supposed to act. Anyway, so during this time, the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, and they put the the Christians uh, there in a demi-second-class status, and, uh, and then there were Jewish minorities that by this time began to come into the area, but they were second-class citizens and had to pay the jizya. Muslims were so... Um, uh, their attitude toward Jews was that they couldn't be outside during the rain. Because if a rain well, came on a Jew and dripped into a puddle and the Muslims stepped in the puddle, they could be defiled. <laughs> and so they uh, had this demi-status where you had to ransom your life once a year. And you would br- you know, bring the money, and they'd, they'd make you kneel, they'd grab the guy's beard and slap his face and humiliate him and then take the, uh, the money. And so you had to do that every year. And if you ran out of money, you were no longer under this deal, and they could, anybody could arrest you or kill you or take your wife and kids, and you had no, no recourse. Um, so as far as Jerusalem goes, it's now underneath the Muslims. And uh, then uh, there's a second wave of Muslims. They are the Turks, and first the Seljuk Turks and then the Ottoman Turks. So the um, Jerusalem uh for centuries was in this place where the christian minorities were there and um uh, europeans would make pilgrimages and the muslims would you know be appeased and they would let these christian minorities come and do their pilgrimage but then uh they changed and they destroyed the church of the holy sepulcher uh with these seljuk turks coming in uh, they took the Syrian Christian, you know, church leaders up to the altar and slit their throats. Um, and so reports of, I mean, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, St. Helena is the one who built the cathedral over it. There's different questions as to whether it was there or the garden tomb or maybe somewhere else. But traditionally, that was the the, the place where they thought that, you know, he rose from the dead. And so when word gets back to Europe in the 10 hundreds, that uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is gone And these Christians are being killed. Uh, There's uh, the Pope, Urban II. He's getting these pleas for help. So like, we're getting pleas for help right now from these Christian minorities, and what are we doing? Nothing. (laughs) Well, the Europeans were doing nothing. Finally, a Pope had enough, and he said, we need to send help. Set aside your differences with these Greeks, and let's come to their rescue. So they send help. It's called the First Crusade. And there's nine major crusades. The fourth one was a fiasco because the Catholic West you know, sacked Constantinople. But um, anyway, uh, the crusades end, and that was the first wave of Turks. But then there's a the second wave of Turks called the Ottoman Turks, and they conquer uh, into the Byzantine Empire. So all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Ottoman Turks, the Muslim Ottoman Turks. All these New Testament letters to Ephesus, and Galatia, and Colossae, and Philippi, and Corinth, all those cities were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And um, anyway, uh, the Mus- the Ottoman Turks eventually conquered Constantinople, which was the New York City of the day, where the east and west met, it was a big trade city, um, and that, once they conquer Constantinople, it cuts off the trade routes to get from Europe over to India and China, and that's when Columbus set sail, looking for a sea route to India and China. Uh, are you still with me? Does this yeah, make sense? No. Am I going too fast?
0: No. But let's go ahead and take our first break right here And we'll pick it up Today my guest is William J. Fetter He's speaker, best-selling author And we are discussing Israel, Islam And how they're relevant to today's problems in the Middle East And we'll be back momentarily on the Truth Seekers Radio Show
2: 855 371 FAST 855 371 FAST 855 371 FAST 855 371 3278. This is a fee based document preparation service to help you access free government programs. Call for complete details not available in all states.
3: Not too long ago, it felt good to withdraw your cash from the bank, didn't it? For a vacation or a new car. But today, withdrawing your own cash has become risky.
4: Call 800-631-0976, 800-631-0976, 800-631-0976. Call right now. That number again is 800-631-0976.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers radio show today. My guest is William J. Fetter. He is a speaker and best-selling author. And we are discussing Israel, the truth about Islam, and the Middle East. So, Bill, if you want to pick it up, you were just bringing up Columbus when we went to the break.
1: Right. So Columbus said they are looking for a sea route to India in 1492 because in 1453, the Muslims had conquered Constantinople, cutting off the land routes. So everybody that hates Columbus really bad needs to turn one chapter back in the history book and realize the reason Columbus set sail was because of Islamic jihad cutting off the land routes to India and China. Anyway, so uh, Jerusalem is now ruled by the Ottoman Turks, and they uh, taxed them. It's interesting. The Ottomans, because it was, you know, an arid area, the valuable thing was a tree. So the Ottomans taxed a person as to how many trees are on their land. So what did the people do? Uh, Cut down the trees so they wouldn't get taxed. And so they had a financial incentive to destroy their land, ironically. Um, So the Ottoman Empire went through three stages. The first was an expansion stage. In the 1500s and 1600s, they were surrounding Vienna, Austria. They were dominating the Mediterranean. The second was a maintaining stage. So once they had their wings clipped and they weren't expanding, they maintained their area. And they really weren't in any hurry to force the minorities to convert. Why? Because in Islam, the non-Muslims were the ones who paid the taxes. And so you weren't in any hurry to get them to convert to Islam because you'd lose your tax base. But then is the third stage. So the Ottoman Empire goes from expansion to maintaining to... Degenerating. It was called the sick man of Europe and it became corrupt. Uh, the, the Christian base for taxation was dwindling. Um, and at, during this time, different Christian minorities wanted to break away. So, Greece in the early middle 1800s breaks away from the Ottoman Empire, and then Romania. And Albania and Bulgaria, they're all breaking away. And this corrupt sultan tries to stop it, and he, like, you know, kills the minorities, and he has these, you know, genocidal purges in the middle to late 1800s. And so uh, so Israel is dominated in the 1860s and 70s. I think it was 1865. Mark Twain visits Jerusalem and Syria. And he writes about how the Ottoman Turks had just trashed the place and it was like all fallen apart. It was a bunch of rocks. There weren't any trees. And um, uh, so uh, so the Ottoman Empire was in this third stage falling apart. It, it, it was started in 1071, finally ends in 1923. But uh, a, a little bit of an insight. Um, oil is discovered in the Middle East. And this changes everything. Uh, so... Uh, 1800s, oil came from whales. Whale blubber was turned into oil, and they used it for their oil lamps. And you had whaling ships going around the world, uh, driving whales into extinction. Uh, But the whales were saved by the oil industry. Yes, that's right. Uh, When oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, and then Oklahoma, uh, they transitioned away from chasing the whales to getting oil out of the ground. So, the oil industry saved the whale. But It changed world politics because oil was then discovered where? In Baghdad and in Iraq. And so uh, now these European countries that wanted oil had an interest in the Middle East. And so uh, Britain had its navy and ruled the world for a couple centuries. Its big rival was France. And so Britain was sort of, in a sense, happy that France was getting some competition from the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm. Of Germany, now Germany wasn't Germany uh, for centuries. It was a bunch of kingdoms, Saxony and Bavaria, and and, uh, finally Otto von Bismarck, uh, in some wars, unites all these German kingdoms into what we call modern-day Germany. And so Prussia and everything was was incorporated. And so they had a leader of this united Germany called Kaiser Wilhelm, and uh, Kaiser Wilhelm decided he wanted to join into the uh, expansionist mode, and he became a competition to France. And uh, England was sort of uh, happy that France was getting competition from Germany because, uh, you know, France had been the rival to England, and so they thought, well, gee, that'll keep them preoccupied. But Germany ended up really knowing how to make steel and railroads and automobiles and ships, and what did they need? Oil. And so Germany made a pact with the Ottoman Empire. And they built a railroad across Germany, across Eastern Europe, across Turkey, into Iraq, all the way to Baghdad. And so now, uh, England is realizing that um, it's at war with Germany, and the, Germany's oil is coming from the Middle East, and England wants to stop it. And so half of World War One took place in the Middle East. We always think of World War I as a bunch of killing fields in France and, you know, uh, uh, the trench warfare and so forth. Um, but a whole half of it took place in the Middle East. We're familiar with the poison gas used uh, in the trenches in France, right? Well, guess what? The British used poison gas to kill people <laughs> in Iraq. That's right. The poison gas we talk about today, well, the British used it. And um, when Germany lost uh, World War I, the Ottoman Empire lost World War One, And so the Ottoman Empire was divvied up, and Britain took a huge chunk of it. Uh, Egypt, Palestine, Iraq, France took a part of it, Lebanon and Syria, uh, Algiers. They wanted Turkey, but Turkey rallied to keep its base. Um, but uh, they wanted America to take part of the old Ottoman Empire. Armenia, uh, we said no. Uh, we were isolationists after World War One, and so we abandoned the Armenians to their fate, and the Ottoman The Turks, it's no longer the Ottoman Empire, but the Turks didn't want to lose any more land. And so they began a genocide against these Armenians and uh, killed a million and a half of them. Anyway, so we're back to Israel. Uh, So uh, France gives Syria and Lebanon their independence, you know, 1946, 1947. Egypt gets its independence. So these European powers had taken these countries as protectorates. Sort of like America took the Philippines or, you know, Puerto Rico as a protector or whatever. Mm-hmm. So these European powers eventually give these countries their independence. And uh, the Europeans uh, recognize different people to be leaders. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting period of time. So after World War One, let's look at Turkey. It gets a leader named Ataturk. And he decides that the Turks were a great people before the religion of the Arabs came in. And he wanted to secularize the government. And Ataturk says that a good leader doesn't have to resort to religion to enforce his rule. Uh, He would say that uh, Mohammedism is nothing more than Arab politics trying to impose themselves on our country. And so Ataturk Worked to secularize the government of Turkey. He gets rid of the fezes and the burkas. He gets rid of the Arabic language and the sultan and uh, the uh, beards, and he has everybody dressed in business suits. And if you look at pictures of the 1920s and early 30s of Turkey, it looks like Hollywood, right? You know, they're dressing in their their nice dresses and their suits, and uh, you know, smoking their cigarettes. And um, uh, but this is Atatürk, and so. You have him, and then you have the Shah of Iran. he loved america, and he um you know uh, I met his son uh, who wanted, he they wanted to secularize the government of of Iran and distance themselves from their fundamentalist muslim past and America helped Saddam Hussein come to power in Iraq, and America helped Egypt to um you know, with the Anwar Sadat and the different ones. And and so uh, we were helping uh, these countries, and they would send their kids to Western schools. They would teach English in their countries. You know, they'd dress in Western dresses and business suits and shave off the beards. And and so it was moving in this westerly direction. Uh, And so Israel was, uh, during this time, given its independence in 1948. Now, if you look at it, uh, Britain uh, was indebted to a family. And it was the um, uh, al-Husseini family in Arabia. And uh, the one dad, al-Husseini, helped organize the Arabs to defeat the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And so um, the British sort of liked al-Husseini. And al-Husseini had two sons. One was Faisal, and the British now recognize him as the new king of Syria and Iraq. And there's another son named Abdullah, and Britain recognizes Abdullah as the new king of Jordan. And uh, anyway, uh, so uh, Fazl, the the son of the the guy that led the revolt on on Britain's behalf in in Arabia, Fazl actually uh, writes a letter. Uh, to Felix Frankfurter, a Supreme Court justice in America, saying we welcome the Jews to the land and I'm going to give up some of my area of Syria and Iraq and I'm going to go ahead and and we welcome the Jews to resettle the land. Um, there are our brothers and we've both experienced oppression by foreign powers that wanted to uh, you know, dominate our interests. And so, you know, come on, it's great. Uh, and so Fosel goes to the Paris Peace Conference And he goes ahead and agrees to the Balfour Declaration and giving the Jews this land. And um, now, there's one little monkey wrench that was thrown in, Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Who was he? He was some lieutenant that the British sent on an exploratory mission to see if these Arabs could be organized to help overthrow the Turks. That was all he was supposed to do. But what did he do? He took it upon himself to go to these Arabs and say, you know what, if you help Britain throw out the Turks, we'll give you the land. Well, he wasn't authorized to negotiate. And, uh, and so, you know, Britain and France and even Russia and these others had done these treaties to decide who's going to take over what lands as protectorates. And then you got this Lawrence of Arabia lieutenant that's, um, uh, promising to give land to these Arabs. And, and, and so that is the origin of this, you know, illegitimate type claim that, um, the British had given the land to Israel, a huge chunk of land, went from, you know, the Mediterranean all the way to, you know, the Euphrates and went from Syria all the way down to to Arabia and Egypt. It was huge. And um, but because of Sir Lawrence of Arabia telling these Arabs that they could have a the land, they sort of say, well, wait a second, we get part of this land. Um, but the land uh, was called Palestine, the land of the Jews. And so there's all these Palestinian aid organizations to do what? To aid the Jews so that the land of Palestine was always considered the Jewish land. There was no Palestinian nationality or Palestinian language or Palestinian food or Palestinian dress. They were just Arabs. And so the Palestinian is a created nationality, so to Bill,
0: speak. I think that's a really good point. And I, let's take our second break. And when we come back, I'd like to pick it up because that's to me, that's really important that people I don't think people realize that. Listeners today, my guest is William J. Fetter. He is a speaker and bestselling author, and he's giving us a lot of insight on the history of Israel The truth about Islam and the problems in the Middle East. We'll be back momentarily on the Truth Seekers radio show.
2: And Control your health care with Liberty Health HealthShare.
1: Liberty Health HealthShare is an alternative to expensive health insurance.
2: You can finally make the right decisions for you and your family.
1: It's not insurance, it's medical cost sharing.
2: You can affordably control the cost of your medical expenses.
1: It's a group of individuals effectively sharing the cost of health care and paying far less for it.
2: You don't even have to pay for procedures that are unnecessary or that violate your conscience.
1: This is based on shared values.
2: You are not alone.
1: With Liberty Health Share, you're part of something bigger, a group of people who care for and support one another.
2: Join the movement of people who share in medical costs and change the way you pay for your health care forever.
1: It's simple and easy. Call 1 800 714 6993 right now for more information or visit libertyoncall.com. Get a free
3: estimate today.
2: Liberty Health Share. There is an answer.
3: Not too long ago, it felt good to withdraw your cash from the bank, didn't it? For a vacation or a new car. But today, withdrawing your own cash has become risky. Pat Boone here for Swiss America. According to the Secret War, a new Swiss America white paper, I learned that all banks are now required to spy on you and me for the government and then report any financial behavior deemed suspicious or unusual. You must read The Secret War. It's free. Truth is, I believe the government's new war against cash is really a war against us all. But The Secret is now out. So please, get
4: and read The
3: Secret War.
4: Call 800-631-0976. 800-631-0976. 800-631-0976. Call right now. That number again is 800-631-0976.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers radio show today. My guest is William J. Fetter. He's a speaker, best-selling author, and we're talking about the history of Israel, Islam, and the problems in the Middle East. Bill, can you give us your website and how people can find your books?
1: Sure. My website's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And um, I send out a free daily email and lots of different books, um, you know, the whole Zionist movement is quite interesting. Uh, in America, we had a second Great Awakening revival. And uh, it's the early 1800s, and we're sending missionaries around the world, starting the Bible societies and the abolitionist movement and so forth. But uh, there began this movement of um, millennialism and in the, in the pre- preachers preaching about uh, the return of Christ. And, um, and some of them found uh, that before it can all happen, uh, the Jews have to resettle their land. And so there were actually Christians that would go to these Jewish synagogues and say, you need to go back and resettle your land. And that, that was the little itsy-bitsy spark that began the Zionist movement. Well, in the middle 1800s, it grows, and you have Theodor Herzl. And he has a, a Zionist congress, and they meet in Switzerland. And uh, matter of fact, one of the people that attended was uh, Henry Dunant, the founder of the International Red Cross, he was a Christian. He started the YMCA there in Switzerland. And and, um, so Henry Dunant uh, was was, uh, called the first Christian Zionist by Theodore Herzl. And so you had these, uh, you know, uh, Great Awakening type Christians uh, that are encouraging the Jews. And then you have the Jews taking up the leadership of it. And then they begin this Zionist movement. What are they doing? They're saving up their money. And on their own, they're quietly buying little land in the in the Palestine area. And you know, first they're buying it in the Ottoman Empire period of time, and they're gradually sort of quietly moving over. They're having their farms. Well, during World War One, uh, two things happen: the British are short on money, and they find out about the Jews saving up money to buy land. And the British say, "Look, uh, lend us the money. After we win the war, we'll give you the land." And so now you have what was, became the basis for the Balfour Declaration. Second. Is the British were running short on explosives. And um, when the Russians had driven out the Jews, the fiddler on the roof period of time, remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the Jews fled west and some fled to England. And one of them was Chaim Wiseman. And he was a chemist. And he developed a, a biological way of making acetone, which was an ingredient needed for explosives. And this revolutionized the Britain's war effort. And uh, after they win the war, uh, they want to thank him. And they say, well, you know, let's make you a sir or a knight, give you an estate somewhere. And uh, Chaim Wiseman says, you know, I really have my heart set on a, on a homeland for the Jewish people. And they say, well, what about Uganda? You know, we give you, we can, if Britain controls Uganda, we can give that to the Jews. And he says, you know, I was thinking more of the, the traditional area. <laughs> uh, and so they go, oh, yeah, we just got the protectorate of all this land in the Middle East after World War One, and, um, and the dividing up. So so that's when they did the Balfour Declaration. And Lord Bell, Balfour um, uh, uh, goes ahead as the British um, uh, political leader and uh, gives the authority for the Jews to go over there and settle. And so um, – uh, this is when they're greeted by that uh, King Fozel, and uh, he says, Great, come on. And um, Woodrow Wilson uh, recognizes um, Chaim Wiseman, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, America is supporting it all. Uh, so we uh, see this is quite an interesting article. So here's um, a letter from uh, uh, Fasl. He represented the Arab nations at the Paris Peace Conference. And he's the the Muslim king of Syria and Iraq. And he says, um, the Faisal Wiseman Agreement, January 3rd, 1919, Adopting the Balfour Principles, Article 4, All necessary measures shall be taken to encourage and stimulate immigration of Jews into Palestine on a large scale and as quickly as possible to settle Jewish immigrants upon the land through closer resettlement and intensive cultural cultivation of the soil. And then Faisal writes, we feel the Arabs and the Jews are cousins in having suffered similar oppressions at the hand of power stronger than themselves, so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, so that was the uh, the ancient part of the history. Uh, and then we see a couple other uh, ingredients that come into the mix. Uh, there's a, a Jew in um, uh, England who's uh, actually jealous of Chaim Wiseman. And he views the Russian Jews as interlopers that here, the Jews that had been in England for all this time had gotten into positions of respect and influence. And here this, this Russian Jew comes in and he, well, he uh, is like the British uh, ambassador to India. And what does he do? He convinces the British government that, that Israel should give up half their land to the, uh, to the Arabs. And, um, uh, his name was Mr. Lucian Wolf, L-U-C-I-E-N. Mr. Lucian Wolf. He was the secretary of the Conjoint Committee, and he opposed Zionism. And uh, he said, "Well, there's not enough Jews to fill up the land, and so just you know." So basically, that was the first land. That was the first uh, attempt to give the the Jews land for peace. And um, so the British do, and they they you know take away half the land. This is in the 1920s. And uh, But then another interesting thing happens. Uh, remember Arabia and the al-Husseini, uh, the, the older man uh, who had the two sons. Um, he loses Mecca to the House of Saud and the fundamentalist Wahhabis, or the Salafi. Uh, these are the uh, precursors to al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS, Muslim Brotherhood, and so the Wahhabis had been just a desert group that did the, the, the veils and the burqas and the chopping off arms and legs. And they, they were just this, this sort of very extreme group in the desert. But they teamed up with the Sauds, and with their help, they conquered and captured Mecca in 1924. Uh, why is that significant? Well, the Muslims would take pilgrimages to Mecca. And now, when they would go, they would get infected with not the type of Islam that's friendly with the West— they would get infected with this Wahhabi Islam, mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, it ends up that Al Husseini uh, sort of got uh, crossways with the British, and they didn't um, uh, come to his help. And the Saud family took over all of Arabia, and uh, there wasn't anything there but a bunch of sand. So the British really didn't care too much about it. And uh, and so then in 1928, the Muslim Brotherhood is officially started. And their goal is to stop being friends with the infidel West. And what do they do? They would target these secular leaders who wanted to be friends with the West and who were dressing in business suits and shaving off their beards and they're having their wives dress in Western clothes. And so, this these uh, fundamentalist Muslims would target the the ones that weren't, were wanted to be friends with the West. And uh, again, just a minority group, um, and the West would help to. Uh, get these, you know, strengthen the leaders in their power so they could crack down. These Muslim leaders were faced with the dilemma. How do we institute Western democratic ideas when you have these fundamentalist ones that are going to take advantage of this freedom and organize to try to kill you? Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have that in America. You know, we'd give it, you know, everybody had this basic Christian idea that, you know, you don't do that type of thing. But over there, uh, so um, the big change happened again in 1937 oil. So the same way back in the late 1800s, you had Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, and Baghdad, and the oil in the Middle East brought all of the Middle East into World War One, and all these European powers came over, and they wanted to divvy it up because it's a great place for oil. Well, now we got oil rear in its head again. 1937, Standard Oil Company discovers oil in Saudi Arabia. And within one generation, they go, Arabia with its Uh, Aramco, the Arabian American oil company, uh, Saudi Arabia goes from the poorest Muslim country to the richest Muslim country. And several things happen. The rest of the Muslim world begins to think, wait a second, why should we be more secular like the West to be blessed? Let's be more fundamental Muslim like Saudi Arabia. Look, they're the most fundamentalist Wahhabi country, and look how blessed they got in just a few years. And so we actually flipped the switch the magnetic switch and all the little metal filings line up, you know, mm-hmm. of all the Muslim worlds are saying, hey, let's send, let's go to Saudi Arabia for a job. And well, they go for a job and they'd learn how to dress and they'd get, get the burqas and then they go back to their countries, all with a lot of money, but now infected again with this fundamental Islam. And then Saudi Arabia, with its new wealth, began to do what? Buy international politicians, right? All these international businesses and oil companies, they say, hey, we want to do deals with these guys. And so... Uh, they would begin to buy politicians on both sides of the aisle and in all the different Western countries. And then what did Saudi Arabia do with its money? Build mosques. They're the number one builder of mosques all around the world. Nine out of 10 mosques in America are financed by Saudi Arabia. And they're building hundreds of mosques across Bulgaria, across Africa, across all around Europe. And what are they teaching? Saudi Arabia is the number one published funder of the, of the publishing of fundamentalist textbooks that do what? That teach on Wahhabism, cutting off arms and legs, and this is where you cut the wrist off. And, and, um, and they're doing it all with money from us. And so now it gets interesting because Saudi Arabia wants to build up a, a pipeline uh, across Syria into Turkey to supply oil to Europe. The problem is oil to Europe is Russia's number one export and so, if Saudi Arabia is successful in building its pipeline, it's going to destroy the Russian economy. And so, Russia is uh, an ally with Syria and Iran, and Russia does not want to let uh, this Saudi oil pipeline be built across <laughs> uh, Syria. And so, what we're seeing is it's an oil pipeline war. Uh, now, there's a religious mix in it. Uh, there are reports that, you know, a, decade ago, uh, the CIA, uh, because the Saudis have been, you know, they were friends with the Bushes, and they give money to Hillary Clinton's, you know, foundation. And and so the Saudis have been investing heavily into Western politicians, and so our foreign policy in America has been favoring them. And so um, we've been in favor of uh, allowing them. But uh, the king of, uh, you know, the Saud of Syria doesn't want to let this pipeline go through. And so now uh, we are placed in a predicament um, that America had been rhetorically saying that they're against ISIS, but under the table they've been supplying arms to ISIS and, um, uh, and then abandoning these leaders in the Middle East. So the uh, Mubarak was a, our ally and leader and friend in Egypt, and what did Obama do? He abandoned him. He actually called him on the phone and fired him, told him to step down, mm-hmm. and uh, and let a Muslim Brotherhood, a fundamentalist Muslim, take over Egypt. Uh, he rule for several years. It was a miracle he was driven out. And then what does Obama do? On his own, he takes out the leader of Libya. I mean, how does this work where a president can simply knock off somebody that's a leader of a nation that we're not at war with? But he did it. And then uh, what were they doing? They were moving American guns through Benghazi over to Syria. And um, what were they doing there? Uh, They were arming and training Muslims to take out Assad. And um, when um, Russia comes to Assad's rescue, uh, you know, these Muslim fundamentalist Muslims are wiping out these Christian minorities. And um, and so a lot of Hillary's emails that she didn't want people to see are inventory lists of weapons being moved from Benghazi over to Syria. And um, uh, so... um, Now, I I passed it up, but in the middle of all this, we had World War II, um, and uh, the Jews were going to Palestine. The Mufti of Jerusalem, the Muslim leader, uh, met with Hitler, and he said, we don't want the Jews. And so Hitler decided to send the Jews to the concentration camps where they got killed. So Hitler originally was just going to let all the Jews leave and go to Palestine to get rid of them. But it was the Muslim leader, the Mufti of Jerusalem, that uh, said, no, we don't want him. Uh, but um, anyway, after the war, Harry S. Truman uh, decided to have the United Nations recognize Israel. And, uh, and then Russia recognized Israel. That was in 1948. Um, and things were going along that track for a while until all that oil money I mentioned uh, the Muslim countries became wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and they decided to form a UN inside the UN. It's called the OIC, Organization of Islamic Cooperation. 57 Muslim countries, some of the richest men in the world, and they began to use their money and clout to uh, change the UN into an enforcement of, of their agenda. And um, they didn't like the UN Declaration of Human Rights where you can join a religion no, and leave. Let's take our last
0: break. So hold it right there. Listeners, today my guest is William J. Feder. He's a speaker and best-selling author. He's the host of American Minute, and we'll be back momentarily on the True Seekers radio show.
2: Want to lose weight? then turn your body into a furnace that literally melts the fat away. That's exactly what Thermometer does. Thermometer is uniquely formulated with patented ingredients like bitter orange, brown seaweed, and decaffeinated green tea. Their combined thermogenic properties boost up your metabolism and turn up the heat in your body so you melt the fat away without any jittery side effects. Thermometer is not available in stores. It's only available to listeners of this station. We're giving away 100 free bottles right now to anyone who enrolls in our special trial offer. Call now for your risk-free trial offer. 800-430-4147. 800-430-4147. 800-430-4147. One more time, 800-430-4147.
4: Attention business owners, we know that owning a business means getting things done right now. So if your right now list includes a new building, call the right now company. General Steel. We can design a building for your business quickly and save you thousands
1: of dollars. That's right, thousands. You may think General Steel only builds large projects or that you can't afford General Steel quality. Well, check these prices. How about a 40 by 60 foot building
4: for under $22,000 or even a 50 by 100 for under $35,000? That's right, a 5,000 square foot building for under $35,000. And these buildings all have General Steel
1: quality. Best of all, you can still order a building and have it delivered in time to build this year. How's that
4: for? right now so if your right now list includes a new building call the right now company general steel 800-965-1291 800-965-1291 800-965-1291 that's 800-965-1291
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers radio show today. My guest is William J. Federer. He's a speaker and bestselling author, and we're discussing Israel, Islam, and today's problems in the Middle East. You know, Bill, before we run out of time, you gave many examples, Syria, Egypt, Africa, where the Muslims have gone in and pretty much taken over. Don't you see a parallel now today in our own country where we're calling this a religion of peace, yet it seems like they're now they're getting into politics. And I, I can see on the horizon where we're going to be dealing with Sharia law and whatnot. What's your feeling on that?
1: Well, um, you know, there are reports of terrorist attacks uh, committed by Muslims and uh, politicians are quick to assure us that these Muslims that did these terrorist attacks, that they do not represent true Islam. Unfortunately, these Muslims are yelling Allahu Akbar, and they claim that they do represent true Islam. Who can tell us what true Islam is? One person, Muhammad. He was the best Muslim that ever lived, and so his life is called the Sunnah, which means the way or the example. And so Muslims that want to be really super devout, they want to follow his example. So if we look at his example, we see it went through three stages. He was a religious leader. Then he became a political leader. Then he became a military leader. And so while the vast majority of Muslims have gotten away from following his example, and they're content to live their lives and have their families and, and you know enjoy uh, their friends, and uh, there's this percentage of Muslims that want to follow Muhammad's example. We call that getting radicalized. And the dilemma is, is that the fundamental Muslims have the Quran on their side. And um, even though there's been centuries of traditions of many Muslim cultures of not being violent, uh, the violent ones have the Quran and Muhammad's personal life as the example. And so um, this is the pull that's going on. And what makes it worse is In the fundamentalist mindset, they have this concept. When your enemy shows weakness, that is Allah giving them to you. So when we're showing ourselves really nice and really friendly and really bending over backwards to not offend them, Mm -hmm. there's a percentage of Muslims that view that niceness as weakness. And they say, wait a second, Allah has given us our enemy. And they would teach that if your enemy is afraid of you, that's Allah that put the fear into their heart And that's an indicator that Allah wants you to attack them. So when you're afraid of a Muslim, they take that as an indicator that they're supposed to attack you. And it's sort of like, you know, a shark can sense a distressed animal in the water, and they're drawn to want to go over and attack it. And so in the law of nature, weakness invites aggression. And so there's a percentage of Muslims that view Western niceness as weakness And they take that as an indicator that they're supposed to attack. So irony of ironies, the nicer the West is, the more these fundamentalist ones want to attack. Now, the large number of moderates, uh, as long as they see the West strong, there's a peer pressure magnetic pull to stick with the West and want to continue their more uh, tolerant lifestyle. But when they see the West being weak, uh, they think, well, number one, maybe the world is in fact submitting to Allah now. Maybe we should join these other ones. But uh, the other ingredient is that um, the violent Muslims are threatening the nonviolent Muslims. They say, you either join us or we're going to target you. And they do target them and they do kill them. And so now it's um, uh the, the, the weakness of the West is, is compounding itself and they're on a roll. Very similar to if you were a New England Patriots fan and they're headed toward the Super Bowl and um, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I want to talk you out of being a Patriots fan. And you're like, it's a week before the Super Bowl. We're going to win this thing. Uh, What are you trying to talk me out of being a supporter of this team? And so when the Muslims are on a roll and they see the West just bending over backwards, bending over backwards, and we're trying to go to them and say, hey, we want you to give up this, this. They're like, why? We're on a roll. So historically, it's only after Muslims have suffered humiliating defeats—Battle uh, of Tours, Battle of Vienna, Battle of Lepanto—that um, they would back up and say, "Well, gee, you know, our Ottoman Empire—it's been around a thousand years; it's now gone. Maybe our religion isn't what we were thought thought it was. Maybe we'll be more open to Western ideas." Um, uh, but so the, our foreign policy. So, so in other words, I hate to say this, but the worst thing you can do is be really careful not to insult them. Because when you're really careful not to insult them, they view that as you've already submitted, you've already surrendered, and that's the, uh, an indicator to them that they're supposed to dominate. So it is it is a, uh, you know, there's a, a side where you love the individual, but you have to stand strong against the agenda.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think as... Uh a country.
1: The Christians
0: need to um, come together and get more truth out about this, just as you've done here today. And unfortunately, we're running out of time, Bill. Could you want to give us again your website?
1: Sure. It's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. um,
0: Thanks so uh, much for joining us today And I'd like to have you back on If you'd come back on Because there's so much more we could talk about Listeners, today my guest has been William J. Fetter He is a best-selling author And also he does a daily radio feature Called American Minute And we'll be back next week On the Truth Seekers Radio Show God bless (laughs)